the narrative of the entire story. I mean, everything's been pointing toward the blessing, and everything's been pointing toward God making Abraham into a great nation. And for that to happen, he's got to have a son. But yet Sarah has been barren all of this time. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. It's been 25 years since God had called them out of, uh, out of Haran. And now they find themselves in the promised land, and God has promised and promised and promised to make Abraham into a great nation, but he hasn't become a great nation yet. In fact, he hasn't even had a son with Sarah. He had a son with Hagar. And so we kind of come to chapter 21, and we expect that in chapter 21, there will be this great climax in the story where Abraham is born, but instead... The details of Isaac's birth are given in short order. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21, there's this kind of short, kind of staccato-like rendition of Isaac's birth, of Abraham and Sarah having Isaac. And in the midst of of this story, in the first seven verses of chapter 21, we're going to get back to 22 in, in a quick minute, but in the midst of this story of chapter 21... The details of Isaac's birth are just recorded quickly. Some significant points of Isaac's birth were that this was a divine gift from God. Isaac was a divine gift from God. And, and that, uh, I, that, that God was, was involved and gave oversight. There was divine oversight and involvement in Isaac's birth. And then we see Abraham's obedience in carrying out circumcision for Isaac as a sign of the covenant, being the recipient of the covenant. But then in verse 8 of chapter 21, the the scene just kind of quickly shifts. And we see Sarah's contempt for Hagar and Ishmael come back up. And in verses 8 through 21, she expresses her disdain for Hagar and Ishmael. And then Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael out of the camp, sends them away. And he provides, and God provides for them while they're in the desert. In fact, God even blesses Ishmael, promising to make him into a great nation. And then the story progresses. And we get into chapter 22, and as the narrative progresses into chapter 22, we come to the unexpected climax of the story. The unexpected climax of the story, rather than Isaac's birth, it's Isaac's impending death. And as Abraham is, is commanded to sacrifice Isaac, he, he takes Isaac and he sets out for this land called Moriah to go to the mountain that God would tell him. I can only imagine what's going through his mind in this journey. Could this really be? <laughs> 25 years? Man, I'm 100 years old, and now I'm going three days' journey, and I'm climbing this mountain. Could this really be? Have the covenant promises of God and the whole narrative led us to this end? This is Abraham's greatest test. As we approach the text this morning... I think we see why it's this great test. Would you follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 22? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his hand, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, and there he laid the wood in order to and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word this morning. By show of hands, how many students enjoy taking tests? Come on. None? Not one student in here enjoys taking tests. All right, students, close your eyes. By show of hands, how many adults, when you were students, enjoyed taking tests? One. One. All right. So, one of us. I, I didn't enjoy taking tests either. You know, the reason I didn't enjoy taking tests is because they, they measured something, right? Tests measured my ability to put forward the information that I've learned. It measured the things that I, I was learning. And in order to do well on tests, I had to study. I had to study hard. In fact... I had to study in different ways and learn how to study. I had to kind of go through these trials of learning how to study because of dyslexia when I was growing up. And so tests were really, really difficult for me. It took me a long time to kind of learn and to figure out the, the best way to, to, take, uh, to take tests. One of the reasons we hate tests so much is because we know what it requires of us, don't we? It requires hardship. It requires sacrifice. 
It requires us doing something that's uncomfortable. It requires us doing something that takes great discipline. And in the first scene we come to in the text this morning, this is exactly what we see. We see measuring Abraham. We see the first scene that God is measuring Abraham's faith. Verses 1 through 12. You know, there, there really are, are two overarching questions that we come to in this passage or that's presented to us in the passage. One is, we're presented with this question, how deep is Abraham's trust? How deep is Abraham's trust in God? But not only that, we, we, we have to answer the question, how deep is his desire for obedience? So how deep is his trust? How deep is his faith? And what about his obedience? Is he going to walk obediently following God? As we read the story, you know, like Abraham, we learn that the journey of faith teaches us deep trust in God. The journey of faith teaches us deep trust in God. And what I hope we see this morning as we walk through this text and this story is that in the same way for Abraham, growth involves being tested, that it it happens in our lives. Growth involves, growth in our faith, it involves being tested. For Abraham, in verses 1 and 2, we see the ultimate test. And the ultimate test for Abraham is that God commands Abraham to do this shocking thing, right? The shocking thing he, he commands Abraham to do is to take his son and go and to offer him. As readers, we're told something that Abraham isn't in verse 1. We're told that this is a test for Abraham, right? So, so we kind of look on it and we see, okay, this is what's happening. But Abraham doesn't know this. And so his response to God in verse 1 tells us that Abraham is certain about what God's commanding him to do because Abraham hears God's voice, and he knows that God is speaking to him. This voice of God for Abraham is unmistakable. He's heard it before. If you look back in chapter 12, verse 1, and you recall when God calls him to leave his land, he says, go from your country, go from your father's house, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And what did Abraham do? He took his wife, he took his servants, and all that he had, And he went to this land. He gave up everything to go and to follow God to where God had called him. And the shock of the divine command in verse 2 must have been terrible for Abraham. Take your son, go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'm going to tell you. You know, although Isaac isn't his only son, I think the point of the narrative is the Lord's words here are underscoring the importance of, of Isaac to Abraham. Isaac represents everything that Abraham has given up and everything that he's hoped for. He's given up land, he's given up family, he's given up his heritage, and he's gone to this new place because God has made this promise to him that he's going to give him land, that he's going to give him this blessing, that he's going to make Abraham into great nation through, or many nations, through a multitude of nations, through his son Isaac. And so Isaac represents everything that Abraham has given up and everything he's hoped for. In fact, Isaac is the final piece in the puzzle of realizing God's promises in full. And though the command is troubling, verse 2, and rightfully so, as we, as we read it, it's troubling, 
we need to realize something about Abraham's culture. This command wouldn't have been out of bounds in, in his culture, in the culture of the ancient world. In fact, the ritual of child sacrifice, though it wasn't commonly practiced, was practiced. There are recorded examples in history when it was used as a, a special sacrifice in emergency situations to elicit a God's help. In fact, even in 2 Kings, we see this. 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. You go back, write it down, you go back and read about it later. The king of Moab, desperate in the heat of battle, offers his son as a burnt offering on the wall. So what I'm saying is that at this point, Abraham couldn't have known if his God was so distinct from the pantheon of pagan gods in his day, he couldn't have known if he was so distinct as one who would not accept child sacrifice. So Abraham hears God's command, and the ultimate test is laid before him. What's he going to do? How will he respond? As we reflect on Abraham's test, we're, we're left asking this question. Does God test us? As David read earlier from James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, we could look at other places in the New Testament to see, in fact, yes, God does test us. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will develop endurance. James says, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if you do lack wisdom, ask of God, and he'll give to you wisdom to understand that very trial, that very test that you're walking through. So we see both the, 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 the problem and the solution there wrapped up by James, that when we do encounter tests, because we do, when we encounter trials, when we go through difficult times and we're, we're praying and we're saying, God, where are you? Why can't I hear? Why can't I discern what's going on? When life throws us this curveball, right? We're left asking these questions. God, what is going on here? James says when we lack wisdom to know how to walk through these trials, we pray to God. We ask for wisdom. And he, he grants us wisdom. Now, we can be certain... <clears throat> that God's not going to test us in the same way that he tests Abraham. He's not going to test us in the exact same way so all the kids can breathe a sigh of relief, right? In fact, we have from God's word that we can be beyond the shadow of a doubt that God won't test us in the exact same way. And what he says to Abraham here is for him to go and to, to sacrifice his son. But later in Scripture, we're told from the Torah, from the first five books of the Bible, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21 says, You shall not give any of your children over, uh, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, a false god, and so profane the name of, the, of your God. I am the Lord. Or what about Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse, verse 9? When you come into the land, okay, the children of Israel, leaving Egypt, going through the wilderness into the promised land. Here's instruction for them. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Right? Verse 12. For whoever 
does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Here's one of the reasons why God drives these nations out of the promised land before the Israelites, because of the abomination of their sins, because of the stench of their sin before God. And so we see God clearly lays out in Scripture for his people that child sacrifice is not something that is to be practiced. But this is the ultimate test for Abraham, and so he proceeds. He goes to Mount Moriah, to the land of Moriah. And as he goes, the ultimate test is answered by Abraham with the ultimate obedience in verses 3 through 12. That ultimate obedience is is seen just kind of straightforwardly. We might expect, I would certainly expect, I think I would have something to say, though it might not be fair to put my, try to put myself in Abraham's position. I don't understand the culture fully. But, you know, we might expect Abraham to offer a rebuttal to God. But in fact, in verse 3, he doesn't. So Ab- it just says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men, and he took Isaac, and he went to the place that God told him. And then verse 5, it says, On, on the third day, Abraham lifts his eyes. And he sees the place that God has told him to go. Uh, These three days that he's been traveling, man, this has given him time to think about what he's going to do, right? I mean, this isn't just a story in isolation. This is real life. Abraham waiting on his son to arrive. After 25 years, he comes. And now sometime later, son's probably an early teenager at this point. Now he's taking him to offer him as a sacrifice. He's had time to ponder as he's walking, as they're going. But in obedience, he left their home. He traveled toward this land. And then he leaves the two young men with a donkey. He places the wood on Isaac, and they begin their ascent up the mountain to the place that God told him. You know, we could think about all the different nuances to the text, like he leaves the donkeys behind because it's probably too steep of a a climb even for the donkeys. And here's young Isaac carrying the wood, bearing the very thing that will be used in the burnt offering, carrying it up the mountain. Certainly there are New Testament parallels here for Christ himself carrying the cross on his way to be sacrificed on Mount Calvary. And so in this picture of ultimate obedience, I want you to think about and notice what Abraham says to the young men in verse 5. Look at what he says. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You We can hear Abraham's faith even in this statement. Perhaps that led the author of of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 to write Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise who? Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham, by faith, is he's walking this road that God has called him to, walking in obedience. And he continues to exude faith and confidence when he speaks to Isaac in verses 7 and 8. Look, Isaac asked him a question. Isaac says, my father. And he said, here here am I, my son. There's, There's a tender exchange here. We know that it's not just some 
cold relationship. You said, behold, the fire and the wood. In other words, look, we've got the fire and we've got the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both continued on together. The suspense grows as Abraham builds an altar. He lays the wood in order, and then he binds Isaac on the altar. Taking his knife in his hand, we can, we've all seen pictures. There's a, there's a mental image etched in our mind. As we see Isaac laying there bound on the altar, and he raises the knife, and he's about to slaughter his son, and the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham! For a third time in the narrative, Abraham replies the same way. Here am I. I can only imagine that in the midst of this, Abraham would be experiencing some level of brokenness. Some difficulty with walking in obedience to God's commands. Some struggle as he's come to the ultimate test of his faith. To his relief and to Isaac's as well. The climax of the whole episode is in verse 12. The angel says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You know, some have suggested that God tests Abraham to discover something about Abraham. And that that leads to the question, is God unaware of how Abraham will respond in the midst of this, right? I mean, think about it. Now I know that you fear God, the angel of the Lord says, or God says to him. You know, but, but this question isn't really a question the narrative seeks to answer. The reality is God isn't threatened by our questions. He's not threatened by questions such as this one either. Instead, if growth in faith involves testing, and the journey of faith teaches us a deep trust in God, I think here's what we're seeing in the Abraham and Isaac narrative. We're seeing the difference between knowledge as cognition and knowledge as experience. Knowledge as cognition and knowledge as experience. Right? It's It's one thing to know cognitively that someone who loves you, who loves me or loves you, would do anything for you. But it's another kind of knowing when that person actually makes a monumental sacrifice and does something sacrificially for you. So I would suggest to you that the test here is not for God's benefit, but the test is for Abraham's benefit. The tests that we walk through in life are not for God's benefit, but they're for our benefit. Right? This test is to strengthen Abraham's faith. And, and God desires us to live out our faith and, and worship him regardless of the fact that he knows our hearts. God wants us to pray even though he knows what we're going to say before we say it. God wants us to praise him even though he knows how we feel. Right? He wants, to take, he wants us to take that step of faith. You know, my wife and my children know that I love them, but they need more than knowledge of my words. 
They need more than my mere words to tell them that I love them. They, they long for me to prove my love for them. They long to see the actions of my life align with the words that I speak to them. They want to see my love in action. We see similarly in our relationship with God, He wants to see our faith in action. He wants to see our actions align with our words. And again, in the New Testament, James is is keen on this. James says, don't merely be hearers of the word, be doers of the word also, right? Walk of obedience is Abraham's test. God is testing Abraham to reveal the quality of his faith. And I submit to you that, that he does the same for us. Do we live out what we say we believe? And this is the point of of God's testing believers, isn't it? That in the midst of this journey of faith, that we would learn a deep trust in God's sovereign care, a deep trust in God's providential care, that no matter what things come in life, we know that we can trust in God. We know that we can cast our faith upon him, cast our, our cares upon him. Listen, in this life, Christians can expect to be tested. We experience hardships. We experience sickness. We experience tragedies in life. We experience contempt from others. And the list could go on of the ways that we are tested. We, we really want life to be smooth sailing. We want life to be free from complex situations that remind us we're not in control. But this isn't the norm. That's not the norm. That's not how things normally work. Yes, we praise God for seasons of stability and seasons of security. But more often than not, life could be described more like a roller coaster full of uphill climbs and exhilarating descents. Sometimes I hear this cliche thrown around when people are going through hard times. Maybe you've heard it before or even been guilty of saying it and so not casting stones at you here God won't give you more than you can handle you know this cliche I think goes against everything that God's word calls us to tell Abraham or tell Job or tell Jonah or tell tell the couple who three months after retirement find out that one of them has cancer tell the single income family who who's mom or whose dad has lost their job and they're wondering how they're going to provide. I don't see God won't give you more than you can handle written anywhere in Scripture. In fact, I see the opposite. What I see is that God tests us. He tests us so we can learn to trust in Him because so often the things that we experience in life are designed to drive us beyond ourselves and are designed to drive us to God that we would trust in him, that we would experience his nearness, that our faith would grow and our faith would be strengthened. Abraham had no idea how this would work out. He had no idea how God would work. But he trusted God, and he walked by faith, He walked obediently. Not only is this test given to strengthen Abraham's faith, but this test is also given to offer a foreshadowing picture of a father's pain in sacrificing his son. 
a foreshadowing picture of a father's pain in sacrificing his son. Isn't this exactly what God did when he offered up Christ as the sacrifice for our redemption? We see a glimpse of that in the Abraham and Isaac narrative. Abraham's faith demonstrates the kind of love for God that God shows to us. Abraham's faith demonstrates the kind of love for God that God shows to us. So the promises of God to Abraham, get this, they're not just cognitively known by us, right? They're experientially known by us. Christ himself being the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So we could look at John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way, as the Holman Christian Standard translates it. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son. Sound like Abraham and Isaac? He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life life here is the hope of redemption this test for abraham is is one of obedience and trust it's a test of abraham's relationship with god and it asks whether abraham's trust is in god or just in the promises that god has made is he only being obedient to god when things are going well right question we can all ask ourselves has abraham's faith been motivated by personal gain or simply by his love for god I think this is why the prosperity gospel falls so far short of comprehending and understanding God's God's love. The depth of God's love. It's following God is not about what God promises us. But it's about submitting and surrendering our lives to the sovereign creator of the universe who loves us and even satisfied his wrath by giving Christ his son on the cross. Are we willing to follow God if there's nothing in it for us? Are we willing to follow God if, if, if there's no recognition for the things we do, no celebrity status, no praise from others? Are you willing to serve your neighbor just simply because God commands it? Are you willing to share the gospel with others simply because God commands it? Because God has transformed your life? Husbands, will you serve your wife not for what you get out of it, because, but because you love her? Right? Wives, will you, will you serve your husbands not because of what you get out of it, but, but because this is what God commands of us? You're willing to give encouraging words to someone, not so they'll give them back, but simply to build them up because it's what God's kingdom is about. Are we trusting God in the midst of trials? Are we trying to walk in our own strength? Are we trying to to press through? What what does it look like to demonstrate trust in God in the midst of trials for you? I'm not exactly sure how that works out in your life, but I think if you pursue God through the Holy Spirit, in I would suggest three primary ways. One, prayer, right? Pray, ask God, show me how to trust in you in the midst of this trial. Show me how to walk by faith. But not only prayer, reading scripture, right? Abraham heard from the Lord. He heard God's voice. How do we as New Testament believers hear from God? 
I think primarily we hear from God through reading God's word. And the Holy Spirit teaches us as we read God's word. This is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. He opens our eyes. He illumines our minds to understand the truth of Scripture. So pray, read Scripture, and third, gather consistently with the body of Christ. There are many subpoints under gather consistently with the body of Christ, but this is where we, cr- we come to get encouragement, right? This is where Galatians talks about Paul encourages the church, bear one another's burdens. And so as we're walking through trials in life and difficult days and we're not sure what choices to make, you know, it helps to have brothers and sisters in Christ who are, who are spiritually minded to talk over things with, asking them to pray with you, helping you, right? It helps to have brothers and sisters in Christ who are like-minded, who care deeply for you. So as we walk through trials, here here are some ways that we can can learn to trust God and, and, and demonstrate trust in God in the midst of trials. And so the measure of Abraham's faith was found to be full. And the second scene we come to as we close our time this morning Verses 13 through 19, Abraham sees God's provision. He sees God's provision. In fact, in verse 13, it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The first thing I want you to note is that his faith became sight. If we think about what the New Testament writer in Hebrews says, Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly Seek him. Think about Abraham's statement of faith, verse 5. Right? What did he say to the two men? Stay here with the donkey while me and the boy go. And after we worship, what's going to happen? We'll come back. Right? This is Abraham's faith talking. Verse 8. He also says, God will provide. When, when Isaac asked him the question, what about the lamb? God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Now in verse 13, behold, the lamb has been provided. (laughs) Where did it come from? Why was the ram there? Coincidence? I think not. God has provided. God has provided for Abraham as he's walked by faith. This was God's doing. Abraham's faith became sight. In the midst of the test, the unbelievable trial that he was going through, he persisted in trusting God, believing that God had a purpose and a plan and was able even to bring Isaac back from the dead if he was to sacrifice Isaac. I want to be careful not to suggest that as we live out our faith, things will always work out according to our plans because that is certainly not what Scripture teaches us, right? We can't just believe hard enough that something's going to happen and it's going to happen. That's not the way God's designed it. He's he's God. We're not. 
prayed for my uncle who passed away from cancer two months ago in the same way that I've interceded for Steve Stevens. The exact same way. And look at Steve Stevens. Though he's going through some sickness and going through this incredible trial test, he's responding so well, and this is by God's grace. And we give all the praise to God for this. But we can't curse God in the midst of when things don't go the way that we ask. It calls us deep, deep trust. These trials, these difficulties that we walk through, they're not easy. Abraham lived his life in submission and obedience to the Lord. And in this regard, we were called to do the same. But get this, Abraham was tuned in to hear God's voice. Verse 1, Abraham, God said, Abraham said, here am I. God said, take your son, go and offer him. And what does Abraham do? He takes his son and he goes to offer him. And as he's doing this, the angel speaks to him. And lo and behold, a ram appears. And the ram became the substitute. In the story of Abraham and Isaac, it it exemplifies self-sacrifice in obedience to God's will. And this points us preeminently to the one who exemplified self-sacrifice in obedience to God's will preeminently it was Christ himself who became the substitute for us by taking our place under the wrath of God listen to what Colossians says about the work of Christ in Colossians 2 13 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal commands or demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Who was it that was hanging upon the cross? But Christ Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, bearing the weight and the sin and the burden that we should have bore and the wrath and the punishment that we should have bore. And so as we walk by faith, as we walk by faith, we will go through tests, and our faith will grow in the midst of the tests. We also see here that as we walk by faith, we come to know God's character experientially, in more profound ways. This is really significant. I want to highlight this as we close. As we walk by faith, we come to know God's character experientially in more profound ways. Think about the journey for Abraham, and this parallels our journey of faith. For Abraham, as he's walking and following God, we get, this, we get these names throughout the narrative, beginning in, in Genesis chapter 12. Names help us to understand characters, right? Abram's name was changed to Abraham, the father of many nations, right? Sarah means princess. We have names, and that's how Hebrew narrative works. The names give us some indications. And so 
in the narrative, there's continual growth and knowledge about who God is. And one of the ways that this happens, it, it happens through the names that were given to describe God. It could be really be a kind of a technical discussion, but just to simplify it, and back in chapter 14, the name given to God is God Most High. It's first given by Melchizedek, the high priest, but then it's also given by Abraham. He says he is God Most High, that he follows the Lord, that's Yahweh, the name for God, Most High, and that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. All right, here's an attribute about God that we learn. God is Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. This is something that Abraham learns. Not only that, we see in chapter 15, verse 1, that he is the Lord, your shield. We'd seen before in chapter 14 how God had delivered Lot through Abraham's hand. And so now we see that here's the Lord, the deliverer, the warrior, the great protector. And then thirdly, we see in chapter 16, verse 13, out of the mouth of Hagar that God is the God of seeing. He sees all. He watches over his people. Fourthly, that he is El Shaddai, a word that's familiar to many of us. God Almighty. He's the all-powerful God. He's powerful over all things, even over the other gods. He is the one who is all-powerful. And then in chapter 21, at the end, Abraham, when he's worshiping God, verse 33, he calls him El Olam, the everlasting God. He's without beginning and he's without end. We're starting to see this shaping happen. And the journey of faith for Abraham has led him to this great understanding of who God is and how God works in the world. And it's because of his knowing God and being known by God that his faith has grown to the point that he's able to trust God even in a test like this one. And so at the end here of chapter 22, he calls God Jehovah Jireh, right? The Lord, our provider. The Lord will provide. The Lord is the one who's in control. He gives what's best and he, he gives what's needed. And so we see this Lord, this God, he is the one who provides. And ultimately, this points us forward to see that he is the one who has provided for our redemption in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. For Jesus himself is labeled by John the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus Christ who bore our penalty to take away the sin that we've committed in disobedience to God. And the question we need to answer this morning is, have we placed our faith in this Jesus? We confessed our sin before him, repented, and surrendered to follow him in the midst of the tests and the trials that we walk through. Are we ready to trust in God, to ask God to work in our midst. Let me pray for us this morning and take a moment 
to reflect upon the way that God's at work in your life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we close this time of looking into your word, we ask that you would strengthen us as your children to respond to your grace, to respond to your working in our life, to follow you, Father. Give us strength to walk in obedience. Give us strength to walk by faith. And, O Lord, help us not to give up and to become faint-hearted in the midst of tests. But, God, give us endurance. Pick up our chins that we might cast our gaze upon you and look toward heaven. Look toward your nearness and your presence to strengthen us. And, oh, Father, I pray if there are any here this morning who have not surrendered their lives to Christ, that you would open their eyes, call them out of darkness into your marvelous light, and call them to trust you in the midst of the things that they're walking through. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.